Hello and welcome to this episode of the EWAR podcast. My name is Lian Burma, and this is the space where founders and investors share the lessons they have learned along their journey so that you don't have to learn them the hard way. Today's guest is Pascal Weinberger. Pascal started his career at the intersection of machine learning and neuroscience, working for different companies and research institutions in the field of computer vision. He co-founded Gaia Solutions, an agri-tech startup using satellite images to help farmers make better decisions. In 2017, he became the head of AI and rapid prototyping at Telefonica's Moonshot Factory. Most recently, Pascal co-founded Bardeen.ai, a SaaS product that allows users to automate parts of their workflow. In addition, Pascal is an angel investor and mentor to young entrepreneurs. Pascal, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Super excited to be here. Great. And we're going to talk about prototyping today. And I kind of wanted to start by asking you, like, you ran the AI and rapid prototyping team at Telefonica's Moonshot Factory. And the Moonshot Factory is something we hear a lot about, like Google also has one. But for everyone who doesn't really know what that is, can you give a quick explanation of what a Moonshot Factory is? Yeah, sure. So I think it's like there's different interpretations of it, right? Like there's, it's not like a, a common concept. So, um, but the, the the general idea is that you look at kind of those like big, big problems in the world and you try to come up with a solution to it. And that's in kind of like strong contrast to like normal R&D departments and big companies, but like a normal R&D department will look at like incremental improvements. So like, you know, in Telefonica, it was about like, how can we get more bandwidth out of our current cell phone towers? How do we get more, uh, better kind of, you know, service coverage for, for our users, et cetera, et cetera. So like incremental improvements and like at the Moonshot lab, we looked at solving net new big problems and the kind of like mental framework, uh, at least we were using then, I know that like the team at Google X, for example, and um, other similar moonshot factories has similar concepts, is you think about like, will this problem, like will solving this problem positively impact a billion plus people? Um, and then that kind of selects for these huge societal problems that you can't just solve with like incremental R&D. Um, typically projects in the Moonshot Lab will be like much, much more long-term. So we were looking at, you know, three plus years to get to like a technical prototype. Um, that there'll be a lot more expensive also to do the research and development. But if it works, again, that's kind of like the idea of a Moonshot, right? Like if it works, it gets you to like a really cool place, but it's really hard to get there. There's, there's you know, a lot of other uh, similar concepts around Moonshot Labs, like now with the, you know, movie Oppenheimer out there. Like I, I would say that like your know, Manhattan Project was sort of like the original uh, Moonshot Project in that sense. Or obviously like, you know, the Apollo projects are getting to the moon and so on. But um, now this is starting to be a concept that especially large companies that have to think about like what's going to be their reason to exist in like, you know, 10, 20 years from now, you see that, you know, being more of a topic of discussion these days. Positively impacting 1 billion people was roughly your guideline. How do you identify such problems? Like, do you need to talk to customers or, or users or, or what is the ideation process like? Yeah, that's a, it's a tricky one. <laughs> so, um, at Telefonica in the, the lab, they had a separate team that would focus only basically on ideation. They called it the ideation team. Um, and the idea there was like, you can't really talk to customers because again, customers are gonna, you know, there's this famous 
quote from like Henry Ford is like, if you ask uh, users, they will tell you they want faster horses. Instead, I gave them cars. So you kind of have to look at like, okay, what are actual problems in society? We spend a lot of time thinking about the kind of like global development goals as defined by the UN. Um, there's a bunch of like really interesting kind of like frameworks that they put together around like what are the big societal problems to solve. Then you look at kind of like first principles thinking, like where does technological, you know, phase shift almost like an entirely new technology that we have now or we will have in the next, you know, few years that now makes it possible to solve such a problem that we didn't have before. Um, and then you look at like, okay, like what right do we have to play in there? You know, like, I mean, uh, Google obviously has, um, has a different framework for that than like, you know, Telefonica has. We specifically at Telefonica, we have, uh, or we had like, you know, large global coverage of infrastructure, right? So like infrastructure problems were something that we were excited about because they have experience in that and they have the team to manage and roll it out and have the experience in that and so on. So you kind of look at this like Venn diagram of these three things of like what's like big, big problems to solve, aka UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals, what, where do you have like a big technological phase shift that allows you to like solve these problems now that you didn't have before? And then the third one being like, what right do we have to play in there? And then like between those three variables, you think about, you know, different ideas and solutions. Got it. Big, big ideas that take a long time to develop. You already mentioned like three plus years for a functioning technological prototype. Is that usually the first thing you started when you, when you work on one of these moodshots? Because at eWorld, for instance, in our prototyping course, we talk a lot about uh, you need to prove whether the customer really wants your solution. You need to prove whether there is a business uh, case to be built on that solution. And then if it's technologically feasible, because usually that's kind of the last questions for a lot of problems, the tech is there. Do you think that's different for the problems you worked at at the Moonshot Factory? Yeah, I think the kind of moonshot framework is a very bad framework to choose if you're looking <laughs> to start up company, right? Like the, a lot of the things we talked about before, I kind of assume that you have a lot of money and a lot of mm -hmm. exactly those two things you typically don't have in a startup company. Um, you typically have basically no time and no money to start with. So, so if, if you're thinking about like a startup and like, you know, doing prototyping and ideation and so on for startup, I, I would go about it a completely different way. And like, you know, frankly, like now with what we're doing at Badin, that the company I'm currently uh, building, um, we also do it completely differently. You know, we don't think about like, what's the big societal problem that we can solve in five years, but we look at like, what's a problem right in front of us that we have today that we understand as a founding team, um, where the technology is largely there already. There's not like a huge R&D work required. And where we, uh, you know, can find customers easily uh, or, you know, not necessarily easily, but where we can have access to customers. Um, so that's exactly like kind of the opposite framework that I use when building companies. So I would advise people to use when building a startup company. There are some very few exceptions to these rules, you know, like the famous kind of Elon Musk bets, you know, where uh, he is in a position to raise enormous amounts of capital without proving revenue or product market fit and so on. Um, and then he can apply these more moonshot type things with projects like SpaceX and so on, where he, uh, he went about building the company much more like you would do in a, you know, moonshot project. Um, but again, it's a very, uh, rare position to be in. And he only could do that because, you know, obviously he had the 
financial resources track record and 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 and, and the appetite for risk to do that. Um, it's not necessarily something I would advise. Uh, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the startup funders to, to 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 use as a mental framework. No, I think that makes complete sense. I think we see sometimes something similar if you talk about uh, PhD students that take their discovery um, that commercialize their discovery. So they usually have spent a lot of time and grant money on developing a prototype or developing a solution and then think about how to commercialize it. Might not be a moonshot, but at least that might be a little bit more similar to the process you're describing for moonshot. Yeah. Or, or uh, also, I think in the you know medical technology and pharma um, space, it's also much more like that. Where you know, in order to like, I have a few friends who 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 built and run um, you know drug development companies, and their commercial timeline also is much more like you know moonshot project where they have to do the work for five plus years, raise you know hundreds of millions uh, in, in capital before they can actually prove that the viability of their solution. Again, there's always exceptions to rules, right? But like, I think for 99 plus percent of the startup founders or most of the people who go through like a, you know, the EVO type program, um, that's not necessarily the right framework to use. It's also something I would, you know, in, 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 the, in the medical uh, or, or pharma space, um, they, they kind of, you know, at least the founders I know, they would much rather not have to go through this process, but they kind of have to because of the regulatory framework. Where you you know before you can prove any product market fit or revenue, um, you have to go through these like very rigorous testing and research cycles, through clinical trials, etc. That are just extremely capital intensive and, and and so on. But like you know if, if if you could, you wouldn't want to do that. It's just something that you know in that space you have no alternative and no other choice that you have to. But you know most companies that build you know software or like. Um, you know, even hardware products and so on, like you typically don't have these frameworks. So I would recommend to always think about like, you know, what's the customer demand, build a very hacky prototype as quickly as you possibly can, and then go into iteration mode as soon as you can, where you put something in front of your users, try to get some validation, either get them to pay for it or get some buy-in from them in one shape or form, and then just go into iteration mode with your customers as quickly as you possibly can. Um, that that I would always recommend as a wide framework and timeline to use where possible. And you already mentioned that's exactly what you do at Bordin right now. Can you share a little bit about how that went in the early days of Bordin? Yeah, sure. So um, kind of a bit of background there. Like at Bardeen, uh, we're building a, a workflow automation platform. So you can kind of think about um, it as like solving the problem that we all have where we have 50 tabs open every day and we end up copy pasting data between different services, you know, for recruiting, for example, from a LinkedIn profile to my candidate uh, list on a Google Sheet or an Airtable and then write an outreach email and Gmail. And I end up basically copy pasting the data around and doing the manual work that, you know, really, if you think about it, should be automated. Um, and that's kind of like the problem we're, we're going after with Badin. Obviously, falls much more under the category of like build something quickly and iterate with your users. And, the, you know, in the very beginning, the situation we were in is my co-founder, uh, Atom and I, we both knew this problem very well from our careers. Like, you know, in every position we both held previously, and I'm sure anyone listening to this can identify with this problem, we were massively annoyed with having to do all this like boring, mundane copy pasting and, and, and repetitive work ourselves. 
So we basically were our own customers. And that's always a you know much better starting point to be in because we deeply understand the problem and we deeply understood like what it takes to solve it because we had our own use cases that we wanted to automate essentially. Um, so that's how we started. We basically built a product for ourselves and we basically built it in a way that we would uh, get value from it and use it. And, you know, also the very first versions after a few weeks of uh, iterations and prototyping, uh, we were our first users, <laughs> you know, in our own team. And then expanded to, you know, friends and colleagues and old work colleagues and so on that we put the solution in front of and gathered their feedback. And ever since then, over the last two years, we've now been constantly in this iteration mode where you, you know, you have users, they give you feedback, they ask for certain features in the product, they ask for certain changes to be made. And that's all input to our roadmap. And then we look at like, okay, what, how do we prioritize that? And how do we um, how do we kind of like build towards a solution that works as best as possible for everyone? Um, and that's much more of the process that we went after. I think another point just in terms of like general um, advice or feedback to people is I always prefer to, um, you know, invest with or work with founders that are solving their own problem. In our case, we had an easy time starting because we knew exactly like the problem and the solution. I oftentimes see, especially first-time founders who are trying to solve some abstract problem that they read about or learn about somewhere. You know, they don't, they wouldn't be like their own users. And that's always a much more difficult situation to be in because you have to get all this like research work and like putting yourself in the end user's um, shoes exactly right. Otherwise, you're building something that no one ends up needing. <laughs> so I always prefer to build things that I deeply understand the need for. Um, and like with Badin, that was kind of an easy one because I think like we all, you know, we, we all have like annoying repetitive tasks to do and, and, and we just started with automating our own and then over time developed a more generic platform that can do that for many more use cases than what we needed for ourselves. Yeah, and I like that you're saying solve your own problem. I guess my question for that would be, how do you know that you're not the only one that has that problem? I think you still need to do some sort of market research, customer discovery to find that out. Yeah, I think so. Again, varying degrees to which that's true, right? Like if if it's a very niche problem, then yeah, totally agree. I think there are some classes of problems where that just becomes obvious, right? Like if you're again in our situation, like. You know, both of us were, you know, running uh, larger teams at different organizations. And there's a lot of like management work involved with that. That's, you know, not, I mean, it's fun, but it's not really like intellectually challenging or like exciting. So you kind of want to automate that. And just like, you just need to open your eyes and you see that like around you, there's like, you know, hundreds of other people that have the exact, they're in the exact same situation. So, and that's a sense like the market research kind of becomes obvious. You do need to do market research in a more granular level about like what exactly are the problems they're using uh, that you need to solve, what exactly are the tools they, they're using. And in our case, like much more on a use case level, there we still do a lot of market research. We talk to a lot of users. We have a user community of over 5,000 people now that we, we talk to and we listen to their feedback. And um, we try to understand really like what it is exactly that they need automated. Um, so there you do the market research on a much more granular level. Um, but the fact that like there are repetitive workflows that people want to automate, I think is almost like a, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a truism. <laughs> so like doesn't require a, as much um, market research. Having said that, there are niche use cases where you will want to do that. So 
you know, with the previous project, we were doing computer vision for manufacturing, sort of the quality control part. Um, and I knew that I knew that um, problem space well because I was advising a company that does that at, at a large scale. Um, and and there, again, like the market research was kind of like being in the situation where you are working with a company that does this at scale, like billions in revenue, huge scale. Um, and you look at them and their competitors and then it becomes obvious that it's a problem that needs to be solved. I think like the moment you need to do a lot of market research to even find people that have the problem that you're solving, I think you're putting yourself into like a, a, a really small niche, which sometimes can be hard to build a business around. Um, so, you know, but, but that's also like, there's a timeline question, right? So like, I've seen a lot of kind of like large language model tooling startups pop up like a year or two years ago when the concept of language models wasn't as big as it is today. Um, and, and then back then, a lot of these companies felt like there were a solution in search of a problem because no one was really deploying language models in production or at scale. Um, now, obviously, the you know timeline changed because now there's uh, thousands of companies deploying language models at scale. So now it becomes a very, again, it almost becomes like obvious that there's a problem to solve. So sometimes you have to also kind of just like bet on the timeline. If you if you are starting with a very niche um, problem to solve, then you almost have to bet that the problem you're solving, like, you know, the guys who, who built these language model tooling companies, uh, they made the bet, you know, a year, two, three years ago that they said like, oh, language models are going to become a big thing. They were right. Now it's again obvious that that people need tooling around these models. Um, but they could have also been wrong. Like, you know, it kind of like there was this big shift with like ChatGPT and OpenAI's work uh, being published that, um, that that suddenly these models became, you know, mass adopted. Um, that also could have not happened. And then there would still be solutions in search of problems. So I think there's sometimes a bit of a risk you have to take as a founder there. Yeah, sometimes the why now is because in a few weeks it will be big or in a few years it will be big and not it is big now. Yeah, exactly. And then at that point, it's a bet, right? Like at that yeah. point, you really do the market. I mean, you can do some sort of market research, but there's always some element of uncertainty involved there where you just, where you and you know your team and your investors just have to be willing to make the bet. That makes sense. And um, let's go back a little bit to the early days of Pardeen, because you mentioned you were um, building it for yourself and then testing with friends and colleagues. From what I understand, Pardeen is a B2B tool. So your users are not necessarily the one paying you. Is that correct yeah so we are we're actually right now we're much more of a b2c product but not that like consumer in the sense that like you know coca-cola is a b2c product um we focus on like what we call prosumers so it's end users using our product in a work environment but we do very much target the end user b2b traditionally you would do with a much more like top-down enterprise sales approach where you go CIO, CTO, CEO of a company, and you like pitch them the problem and solution and, and, and then they deploy it across their team. We are following much more of like a product-led growth motion, which is something that isn't as widely adopted yet, but like it's something that like a lot more, especially in the productivity space, companies uh, are following. So, you know, famous examples would be like Notion or Airtable or, uh, you know, even Coda and other products like this where you start out using the product as an individual. So you working as a part of the Evo team uh, uses Badin to automate a certain part of your workflow. 
And then with that, there's certain mechanisms built into the product that make it uh, easy for you to, and almost like more valuable for you to share the product with your team. So for example, in our case, you uh, build an automation for a workflow and say you work in a sales team, but like you have five other colleagues in the sales team that do exactly the same workflow. So now there's like a motion where uh, you share this automation with your colleagues and they also start becoming users of Vadim. And then over time you get more and more pull from that team. And then something that we'll do in the next stage of our journey is really then capturing that around like teams where you would have a team workspace and you have a team version of the product that you can then use together as like say an Evo team. And that's a, a similar kind of motion that you saw with Notion, for example, where you know, Notion in the beginning was a note-taking tool and people used it individually. Then they introduced team workspaces. Now people use it as a company-wide kind of like wiki tool where, where everyone keeps their notes and everything. Um, and then, um, they, they, you know, they basically have a company-wide deployment, but they haven't ever talked to your CEO or CTO or CIO to do a sale. It kind of started with an individual using it or few individuals using it. And then they sort of get this pull into the company. And that kind of go-to-market motion is what we're using. So it's a it's a bit of a, a basically like product-led growth, but like starting with an end user in mind. Did you still have to prototype in some way your uh, business viability? Like how do you know what, because someone needs to pay for your tool, right? In the business, someone needs to say, yes, I want to spend this amount of money on this specific tool that my team seems to want. How, did you have to prototype that? How did you test whether that was going to work? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So I think I'm a huge fan of like always the person who gets the value pays for it. That's always like the easiest situation to be in. There are lots of other tools of products out there where that's not true, where like someone else pays for it and then they kind of push it down in an organization mm -hmm. and then other people use it and get the value from it. There's always like a bit of a mismatch there where sometimes maybe, you know, like the CIO decides that that's a great product, but they don't actually end up using it. And they push it down in their team. And we see this with traditional automation players a lot. So like a lot of our kind of old school competitors use that um, go-to-market motion where they convince the CTO or CIO, they convince them, you know, with, you know, kind of traditional B2B sales strategies of like, you know, uh, wining and dining, pumping them, them the return on investment and so on. And then they push the product down in their organization. And oftentimes the CIO or C CTO or whatever doesn't actually realize that the product might be super hard to use. And now they commit to it and then they have to end up bringing like service providers in to actually help with rolling it out and implementing it because it's such a difficult product to use. That's kind of like the old school motion. What you see a lot more now is that the person who ends up using it is the one ending up paying for it for some period of time. At some point, you know, when you deploy in a team or company-wide, then, you know, same as with Notion, you know, maybe you started paying for it with your own credit card. And then at some point you have a team workspace and your, you know, team admin or finance team or whatever ends up paying for it. Um, but there's a much closer match to like who gets the value and who pays for it. I'm always like a big fan of that. Having said that, for our specific situation, there's a few factors that gave us confidence in the beginning that this is something that people are willing to pay for. One is we have a bunch of competitors that, um, you know, we obviously think have a worse product than what we do. Um, and people are paying lots of money for it. So that's always a good sign. You know, people are paying for another product that kind of sort of solves the same problem that you're solving, but, you know, hopefully doesn't solve it as well as you do. And if people are willing to pay for that, then that's a great indication that they're probably going to be willing to pay for a better solution. Um, so we had that. 
Um, and then also, again, we ha we were our own customers, right? Like, so I knew that I, from the beginning, was willing to pay for something that would help me get rid of these repetitive workflows and save me time because for me, time is money in the sense that if I can be more productive in my work, I have more chances of making the company successful, which ultimately is super valuable to us. And that's true for a lot of other, um, you know, roles, especially in sales, recruiting, project management, all these people, they, you know, their success is measured by how much they get done in a certain period of time. So if you can remove some of the friction and, you know, useless you know, time spent in their processes, then chances are very high that they're willing to pay for it. So that's kind of like how we thought about it in the beginning. We actually had a, our product free for a very long time because we wanted to focus on getting like this viral go-to-market motion going as soon as possible. And we got to scale within like a, a bit more than a year. We scaled from like basically no to like over 200,000 users. Um, so we kind of prioritized growth there over, you know, monetization. But that's something where there's a, it's a lot of debate. Like some people would advise you to, uh, you know, monetize your product as soon as you possibly can. Um, I think like if you have very high conviction that you can monetize it when you need to, again, that was the case for us, you know, maybe it's a better decision to prioritize growth over monetization, but that's really kind of highly dependent on how much you, like you as a founder have confidence in, you know, the fact that people will pay for it. If you need the actual data point or if you can rely on, you know, market factors and your first principles thinking on having that confidence. Yeah, I guess, like you're saying, it's different for everyone. It really depends on the situation, what the what the main hurdle is going to be. And it seems like you were right. People are willing to pay for it now. So is it true that you still hardly ever talk to CEOs, CIOs, whoever at the company that, that your traditional competitors are talking to? Um, I mean, so we talk to our users a lot. Um, sometimes they happen to be the leaders of a company, but we don't necessarily talk to them, you know, to sell them the product, we talk to them to understand their use cases and get user feedback and improve the product. So for us, it's much more important to, uh, you know, like we, we spend a lot of time talking to our users and we do that to improve the product, understand use cases and all that stuff. We don't necessarily talk to our users to sell them the product. That's like the idea in product-led growth, again, is that the problem, like the, the fact that they have the problem and the product solves that, that does the selling for you. Um, now there's a shift, you know, at some point in companies where, um, you know, at some point we will start, you know, building a more of a sales assist motion where we will start having, you know, outbound sales teams that find companies that have similar problem profiles to companies that already pay for our solution and we try to get them to use it. But again, that like, that's not necessarily the focus at this point. Uh, and for us, it's much more important to like really understand the use cases and the feedback on the product as, as, as well as we can. And we talk to every user um, uh, for that, you know, whether the CIO or the intern, we will talk to them. As long as they're a user and they can give you feedback. And another question I wanted to ask, I think one thing we often notice at Ewer if our uh, fellows start to do prototyping and then they have this hypothesis in mind, right? Like, I don't know, 25% of people are going to convert on this simple prototype. Sometimes it doesn't fully come true. It's not zero, but it's also not 25. It's like maybe 10, maybe 12. I think the problem people run into is when to say, okay, it doesn't work. And when is it just a tweak in the color, a tweak in the wording, a better targeted ad, and then get to 25. I think that, that, that gray land in between where you're not really sure, like, is success just a tweak away or is it, should I just give up? Is, is very difficult for people. How do you 
think about that? Like, have you had those those tests where you're like, oh, this is not really what we wanted, what we were hoping for? How did you decide what to do? Go on, tinker more, or yeah, defeat. Yeah. I think that's a good. Fact. I think as as a startup founder, you're kind of like constantly in that mode like i know very few founders who you know wake up in the morning and they're like oh we figured it all out everything's perfect now you know like i think sounds awesome uh, uh, yeah i mean i don't know it actually also sound, kind of sounds boring i think like mm -hmm. the whole, whole idea is that you always have problems to solve and you always have iterations to do and you can always improve and i think the moment uh, you know as a founder you stop having this hunger for improving your product and your company i think that's when you start dying um, as a company, because ultimately, like, you know, some competitor will, you know, copy you and come up with a better version. And if you're not in the race kind of pushing forward, then, then you will end up losing in the long term. So, um, I think that's like, you always want to be in this questioning and inquisitive mode. Like, is this the best way we can do this? Is this like the optimal solution? It can, how can we do this better? How can we improve the experience for our customers? That's always what you want to be thinking about. Having said that. There are sometimes situations where like the data just is like blatantly obvious and it's like, okay, this is not going to work because, you know, maybe some of your assumptions were wrong. Again, you kind of, you want to do everything to, you can to never be in this situation. Again, if you're solving a problem that you know a lot of people have and you know the problem very well and you know that how to solve it, then ideally you should never be in the situation because you, you know, you know that like what you're doing is valuable to a certain number of people. I think the only times I've seen people get to a place where they're like, oh, we kind of build a product that no one really knows is if they've tried to build a product for a persona that it's not them. And you kind of try to do this like mental um, exercise of like, okay, if I was, you know, I'm just gonna, you know, say like, okay, if I was a chemist in a chemical laboratory, which I personally have no idea what their life looks like or what their work profile looks like, maybe I would have, problem x and then they build a solution y to solve that problem x for this chemist and then like their approximation for like the problem was just wrong and then they of course have to kind of pivot and change their, their, their approach but like if you actually put yourself in a position where you solve a problem that you really deeply understand because it's your problem or because you've done an insane amount of market research and understand it from first principles then you should never be in a situation then at that point it's always about like tweaking the solution or changing the solution to fit that problem um better um and i i think like sometimes i i mean you know i don't want to kind of push back on your guys approach here but i think sometimes like that's not necessarily something you can determine by like a specific metric again going back to like notion i think it's a great example no one heard about notion for the first five years or four years of their company like they had very minimal growth they were kind of like lingering around like no one really kind of knew the product that well and then they made you know quote a series of tweaks unquote and suddenly everyone talks about it everyone uses it it's kind of like the coolest thing out there right now in the productivity space and you know if they had given up just because their conversion rate wasn't 25 percent but was 10 percent you know for those four years for example and i obviously don't know their numbers i'm just going to use those like this example mm -hmm. But they gave up uh, because, you know, the, the the rates weren't exactly, the numbers weren't what they expected it to be. Then, like, we wouldn't have Notion today, which, like, now in hindsight, obviously, is a great product. But, like, I don't know. I am I also don't think you can, so, you can make that decision based on, like, kind of, like, oh, how many people convert and so on. Like, there's so many different factors. Like, we see it even today. Like, 
sometimes we make changes like trivial changes to our landing pages and we in significantly increase the conversion rate our product is still exactly the same product it's just kind of like how we talk about it or the messaging or the, the link structure or you know where we put the call to action button that then makes the change like the changing conversion rate or you know the, the user growth and so on and like but those obviously have nothing to do with the product itself i would always be careful about like taking those types of metrics to make such big fundamental decisions again you should never be in this place where you have to uh, do that because you understand the problem so well and i think honestly the best outcome for for, for founders that like if you have a if you have a bad solution to a huge problem people will still use you and they will still pay for it and like we had this in the early days of Badin, like the very first version of our product that we published was horrible like i go back to it sometimes for fun today and i look at it and i'm like how could anyone ever want to use this it's ugly it was difficult to use it was like it was like embarrassing honestly to <laughs> like as a product but we still had people using it and we still had like people kind of retaining it, uh, on the usage of it and like fans in our Slack channel that were like, this is amazing and people raving about it. And like, if you're in a position like that, then that's a really good signal because you know that like, even if the product isn't ideal yet, the problem you're solving is such a big problem and so painful for people that they're willing to, to go through like a painful product experience over like doing it the old way. I think that's almost like what, if, if you're, Understanding of problem space is good enough, then you will almost always see this where, you know, a shitty product wins just because the product is that the, the problem is so big and people are willing to go through pain to use their product just to get it solved. Um, and I think that's that's almost kind of like what you want to be aiming for. I like that. As long as you understand your customer good enough, you'll likely never have this ambiguity, stop or not stop, but you know what to do. Yeah, and you have to really understand, like, I think, like, it's important to, like, understand, like, what the input factors for each metric is, right? Like, I mean, I know people who do these, like, conversion page tests, you know, they take a budget for, like, social media ads, and then they do a landing page with mm -hmm. email, and they're like, okay, if I can get a thousand people or whatever number of people to, like, give me their email address, then, like, okay, I have conviction now I'm solving the right problem. But, like, I mean, first of all, it might like there's there's various different factors right like one maybe just the uh, messaging on your landing page is bad but your product is, would be amazing so now you're like what you actually what you're actually testing is the landing page quality not the product or problem quality right you also uh, like there's there's also always like this thing with um these types of tests where they're like oh we have so many waiting list signups it must there must be a really big problem it's like no like it's basically free for the user to give you their email address. Like people are very generous with giving you email addresses today. Mm -hmm. um, so so like even if you have like a million people on a waiting list and you actually then end up launching the pro product, like maybe none of them actually end up using it because they, they didn't have to actually commit, you know. So I think, you know, a great example for that, maybe like how to maybe do this better, like, you know, again, what, what kind of Tesla does is like, they launch a new car, they announce it. They haven't actually built a car yet. They launch a new car and then they kind of have their own version of a waiting list, like with reserving the car, but they actually make you put like serious money into it. Like they ask, you know, depending on the model, but like I think this, this Cybertruck thing was like $7,500 or something that you had to put down on reservation for the car before they even had the car in production. So like at that point, you actually know that like, okay, people are willing to put real money on the line and like $7,500 is a lot of money for most people. Um, 
so like they're actually going to buy the car, you know, and at that point they then start production and rolling it out and so on. So like that, that's, you know, if they did that with an email and just asking you for the email, like, you know, I wouldn't want to get a cyber truck, but like, I would happily put my email in there, but I would never end up buying that car, you know? So like, it's a, sometimes it's a wrong signal and I see a lot of founders kind of putting a lot of trust and conviction into these like false signals and and that's and that's true in both ways right it's true in the way of like building conviction that like your product and your solution is the right one because you get a lot of email list signups whereas no one is actually going to use it or convert and pay for it but also in the other way around where people have an amazing idea and they have a great problem that they're solving but their landing page just you know sucks um so they get zero signups um on yeah. like very signups but like, and then they throw the idea away, whereas maybe the idea with a better landing page would have landed them a lot of signups, you know? So like, I think it's, you have to be very careful about like really understanding what you're testing with each test and, um, and yeah. Yeah, true. Like you're testing this, this specific configuration of my landing page, getting customers and that answer is no, it has nothing to do with your products necessarily. Yeah. 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 I mean, and maybe, you know, maybe it's just like you just, and we had this problem early days of Badin. I mean, I think we still have that problem to some extent. If you go on our landing page, lots of people don't understand like what the product can do for them. Um, and you know, that just, that doesn't necessarily mean that the product is bad because when we then demoed the product to them or we you know, show it to them or they end up using it from a different channel because their friends recommend it or colleagues recommend it, then they become huge fans of it. But your first time show them the landing page, they don't get it. Now that doesn't mean the product is better. It just means our landing page could be better. And you know, it's it, like, you're constantly struggling with that as a founder. And like, that's something that you have to be really careful about, like understanding really like for each thing in your funnel or for each experiment you do, like really deeply understand like what the actual decision factor and what actual variable you're testing this. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think you also mentioned, right, that one of the first prototypes was actually just a simple version or of your products. And that was what you wanted to test with and not a, a landing page. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And then like sometimes, you know, like, I, I mean, I like, this is, for example, a great, great example, like Superhuman, for example, um, they actually kind of like make you commit time to like try the product, you know, they're like, okay, pay the $30 to like try the product. So first of all, they know that you are willing to spend money to have a better email experience in their case. Um, so they qualify you and then they put you on this like 30 minute onboarding call, which like, like for you to commit half an hour of your day is, is, is a huge commitment for most people. So at that point, they really know that the problem they're solving is valuable. And then they, you know, their product is somewhat more difficult to use with all the shortcuts and so on and so on. So they say like, okay, we can just correct for that with the onboarding call. And they've had amazing success with that versus if they went around and just like got email signup lists and then threw product, like threw their people into the product. I think like their metrics would look very different. You know? Yeah. I'm definitely guilty of signing up for products and then not really trying it out. Be like, uh, it's not super intuitive and then not renewing the subscription, even though probably the product would help me. But I think you're completely right in saying giving your email address away is so different than giving money to a company. Those things are definitely not always the same. If I gave my email address, it doesn't mean I'm also going to give you money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are very different things. And I think that the, what we learned so far is like, 
the, the, the priority stack, there's like people visiting your site or you getting traffic is like the cheapest, easiest to achieve. Second thing is like getting people's email address or some sort of a commitment, like that's free. Third thing is like actually getting them to pay or to be paid for it. But like if you can actually get people to spend time on it, like, you know, download the product, give you like, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes to actually try it and test it and so on. That's the biggest validation you can get. If they do that, you know, by themselves on a video call or something like that, like if the, that actually means that the problem you're solving is like really, really important to people. And and then like the best validation there you can get is if your product, if you know your product isn't optimal and has a lot of things to improve, but people still use it, then you know it's powerful because then you know like, okay, the problem you're solving is so painful for people they're going through this experience to make it, uh, to, to make it work for them. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's also validation that once your product looks nicer, looks better, is maybe easier to use, that others might follow that are not that willing to put up with a product that's not awesome yet. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, we've talked about so much today already. And so basically as our closing question, I always ask, if there's one thing you hope that our listeners take away from this interview, what would that be? Oh, God, that's a hard one. Um, if I had to say it's one thing, then the biggest lesson learned for me would be really like always no matter what decision you're taking in your founder and startup journey like always really deeply understand all the input variables and all the impact factors on any kind of like data point you're looking at right so i think like the examples we walked through is you know with just like landing pages am i really testing the product market fit or just the landing page design or you know in thinking about like if the problem you're solving um, is the right problem is like, you know, am I really, uh, do, do I really, really un deeply understand the user persona? Um, or am I just doing, you know, some exercise of interviewing a few people that like, you know, basically give me misleading data because they don't have any, you know, skin in the game and actually building the solution. I think ultimately as a founder, it's all about like building the conv conviction for yourself because you're the one spending, you know, five plus years and, uh, you know, a lot of money, sweat and tears on, 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 on building that company. So, so if you have that very deep conviction and you're willing to go through fire for it, then, you know, even if some survey tells you that it might not be the right thing, then probably should still, you know, pursue it. And a lot of the like most amazing iconic companies were built that way. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's maybe the one thing I would leave with. Great. Keep building, keep trying it out. Amazing. Well, then. Thank you so much for appearing on our podcast, Pascal. I think this was a great conversation and I learned a lot. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was Leon Borma interviewing Pascal Weinberger about prototyping. Thank you for listening.